I'm Chris, and this is my Writing Table Podcast, where we talk to authors and other creatives about the writing world and what it takes to create the books that we love to read. Ready? Pull up a chair, and let's begin. Namrata Patel is an Indian-American writer who resides in Boston. Her writing examines diaspora and dual cultural identity among Indian Americans and explores this dynamic while touching on the families we're born with and those we choose. Namrata has lived in India, New Jersey, Spokane, London, and New York City, and has been writing most of her adult life. Nam's new book is called Scent of a Garden. Welcome, Nam. Hi, how are you? Great. I'm so excited to get to visit with you again. Oh my God. I love the twang. I was telling my husband last week, I was like, when I edit the podcast, I hate my voice so much. It nails on a chalkboard. So thank you. That makes me feel a little bit better. I live in Boston, so I like your twang. I like your accent. I love to hear Bostonians speak. I can't do any accents. I did theater throughout high school and college. Mm-hmm. Cannot do an accent to save my life. <laughs> I can't um, even do an Indian accent and <laughs> my parents don't have accents. <laughs> <laughs> my son does this hey, Ma, and he does this whole Boston thing. And he knows like if I'm having a bad day and he does that, he's going to make me laugh. So since you're a writing table veteran, Mm -hmm. we are going to have some special questions for you towards the end. We're going to do a little fun lightning round. Your second book is coming out soon and your debut was a long-listed finalist for the Center for Fiction's first novel award. An author's first published novel is one that typically receives a ton of attention through the query process and refining it until it's accepted by an agent and it goes on submission. More Mm -hmm. edits, not so much with the second. So can you tell us how those processes compared? Oh, you know, when you're writing to go on sub, it's very Mm -hmm. different. So I had my agent with two other books, but they didn't sell. So this was the third book I wrote. And after those first two didn't sell, it's just taking a break. And my agent was like, just write to your id, write to whatever moves you instead of like thinking about romance or what genre or what does even rom-com mean. Mm-hmm. And so this book was born out of it. And it happened fairly fast because as soon as we went on sub, things were happening within a couple of weeks. And I didn't have as much time on my manuscript as if the manuscript I'd queried with, right? So mm-hmm. I wasn't writing for being on sub. I was just writing to like write the type of story I wanted to tell. Right. So when we went into the first dev process and the editor working with them and just trying to massage the story, it was great because I had a really strong handle on it. The second book was very much, I had two book deals. So the second book was pretty much a paragraph. (laughs) So when I had the deadline for the second book, I was like, oh, wait, I have a very short window and I have a paragraph and the paragraph doesn't make sense. It's some back and forth with my editor to like sort of call the story down. I wrote it. I sent it to the editor. You know, the editor is like, Instead of the editorial letter, they're like, let's talk first. I'm like, oh, no. Oh, no. So it was a harrowing process because I had to have a lot of, lot of edits. I rewrote 90% of the book in developmental edits. So when you say the process is different, I I rewrote the book in one month because that's how much it was truncated. Luckily, I had done all the excavating and the character development. When she called, she's like, so the plot doesn't work. And you know exactly what that means when they say that in such a nice, gentle way. And, you know, I'm not a crier, so I laughed instead. I'm like, of course it doesn't. Inside, I know you're crushed. You're like, damn it, what am I going to do? 
So, so what do you do? Oh, I, I took a walk. And I'm like, okay, you know, you have to take a breather because you only have mm-hmm. a month and you're like, how do you fix the book? I love editors, but they don't tell you how, right? That's your book. They just tell you mm-hmm. like the, what the thing is wrong are. with so, it. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we spent some time brainstorming and seeing how much of the book we could keep. And basically we kept the characters, but we didn't really keep the plot. It was very different. And it comes through a little bit because the characters are very well developed. I feel like her journey is really, really interesting. And it just had to get more defined in the developmental process. And so it's definitely a stronger book because of it, but very truncated timeline. (laughs) (laughs) I have heard over and over about being more character forward. Mm -hmm. To me, I would feel like you have a character, but you don't have a story. What do you do? And yet I am hearing over and over, dig in and get that character right and then put them somewhere. And it's really kind of making me rethink how to approach the book I'm working on now and also future books. And I think it's the genre, but I also think about human nature. We identify with other characters, right? And Mm -hmm. they don't have to be exactly like us. They don't have to be relatable in the same way that we want them to be relatable, but the story only happens if the people driving the story are compelling. So I think Mm -hmm. focusing more on the character, it feels more natural to me to focus on the character than the story, as (laughs) you've heard. And I always thought, you know, as a beginner writer before even querying, I was just like, oh, I'm just going to go for a ride with this character. And (laughs) What you learn along the way is that structure matters and Mm -hmm. the character has to start somewhere and end somewhere. So for me, once I know the start and the end, that's the character journey. And then the middle is the plot beats that you have to sort of hit right. (laughs) Do you know for sure, for sure the ending or does that sometimes change a little bit? Yes, with an asterisk. So (laughs) I say that because I know where the character growth needs to go. So I know where I want her to end up in her internal journey, right? So that for sure I have to know because I can't get there. The external can change. In Mina, I didn't necessarily like want to resolve that final conflict, right? The Mm -hmm. external conflict, but I knew I had to get her to be more open at the end of the book and more receptive to others. So I say yes, because again, the structure will take you there, but Mm -hmm. I have to know what her flaws are at the beginning and then how she grows towards the end. And the flaws don't all disappear because I work with shorter timelines. I'm not writing Mm -hmm. multi-year books. I'm writing like multi-month books. So you're (laughs) not going to change in six months just that dramatically, but you have to change enough for the reader to buy that. He wrote Kitchens of the Midwest. I heard him on uh, the shit no one tells you about writing, say like one book, took place over 30 years, another over 18 years. Oh my gosh. I would be, I mean, that would be like a tome, you know, (laughs) multi books. I can't imagine writing anything like that, but six months. I'm focusing on the details, right? Like, I don't know when I read people who are incredibly talented and they write like these multi-year episodic sagas, like tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. For oh example, yeah. Yeah. Right? Like I need to like be in their heads for like three or four months. And then I'm like, 
I'm out. Now you live yeah. the rest of your life in this fictional <laughs> world. I hope I've set you up for success. <laughs> this new book has a beautiful cover, by the way. I was going to tell you. It is I'm really glitter. It's all the credit. beautiful. It's not glitter, but it looks like glitter. It has like a little splash of yellow paint, which from mm-hmm. afar it kind of looks glittery. Scent of a Garden. Tell us a little bit about it. Yes. It's about a woman who has been passionate about perfumery and almost gifted with a heightened sense of smell to go into that field. And she loses her sense of smell with COVID. And she is in the perfume industry and she's climbing her way up. Her goal is to be a master perfumer. And now she doesn't think she can achieve her goal because you kind of need to know how to smell. (laughs) Very specifically heightened sense of smell. So she's left home at 17 to go become this perfumer and eventually a master perfumer. And she finds herself back home. And she realizes that her family sort of lived this whole other life. And she only knows it tangentially from fleeting visits. So she comes back and she thinks, well, maybe this is an opportunity for me to reconnect. And then she finds that reconnecting is hard after such a gap. And in the process, she has to wrestle with where she belongs. What does it mean to be a part of her family and ambition versus understanding what you need now at this point in life and what that means? So It's a story that sort of meanders through the hills of Napa Valley and in the meandering, her mind also meanders in that, where do I fit? A lot of FOMO about her family having inside jokes that she doesn't know, relationships with her parents that she never really explored because when you're 17 and you leave home and you come back as a 30-year-old, even though you had contact here and there, you're still 17 when you come home mm-hmm. and find yourself mm-hmm. living in your parents' house, right? And and they the see time. you, they see you that way too. Oh, they my parents still see me that way, <laughs> you know? So it was this idea of like having an adult relationship with your parents. And then part of it was understanding for herself, like how did she know that she wanted to be a perfumer and what were the influences and she had to wrestle with like what she sort of made to have that ambition versus mm-hmm. really having it for herself. And that is that idea of like what your parents dream for you. Mm-hmm. And sometimes your parents want to live vicariously through you. Those are really like all of the things that she has to wrestle with in that short time in Napa Valley where she comes home. This is set in Napa, which mm-hmm. is a beautiful area. What was the research like? Oh, it was so fun. I didn't get to go to Paris. So part of the book is Paris, but I had lived in Paris before. When you live in Paris, you stop romanticizing the city because it's a gritty city. Like the lived culture of Paris is very gritty. So I wanted to bring a little bit of the grittiness out. And I wanted to romanticize Napa, but not from like the wine place, but it has beautiful soil content, Mm -hmm. not just grapes. Researching perfumery was Fabulous. I went way deep in the weeds. Um, (laughs) I started writing formulas for perfumes, which obviously didn't make it into the book because it is not a scientific tome or any kind. Then I researched gardening because I do not have a green thumb and learned about soil content and what kind of things grow there. And I wanted to focus specifically on flowers and herbs, sage, and you know what type of sage grows there versus in a climate somewhere else. So it was a lot of research, a lot of diving into something that helped me not write. My first book was set along the Texas Hill Country Wine Trail. And it was a similar thing that 
you know, you think, oh, well, you go down there and visit and you go, oh, well, they grow grapes like they do in Napa. And I've been to Napa several times. And so it's like, okay, it must be the same. And next thing I knew, I was deep in the weeds with the Texas A&M agriculture system, mm-hmm. learning about the soil content and why you don't do Chardonnay. Soil. Yeah, it's it's all different. And yeah. that makes a big, big difference. You can taste the difference in mm-hmm. Texas Hill Country wines, particularly mm-hmm. white wines, than oh, yeah. in California whites. And I can definitely taste the difference between Europe and California. Mm-hmm. I really like Chenin Blancs in Texas, as far as whites. In the foreword of this book, you had an author's note where you talk a little bit about your parents' influence. Can you tell us a little bit about that? We came over as a family when I was eight, and my parents were basically in the hole. (laughs) They borrowed money for plane tickets. Where did you come from again? India. So Gujarat. You know, my parents didn't really, they had careers in India. My dad was in fabric sales and my mom was a teacher, vice principal, actually. And when they came here, there was no such thing as like what do I want to be, right? It was survival. It was how do I put food on the table and roof over my kids' heads? And, you know, they just worked. They worked a mm-hmm. lot. And I watched them. You know, my mom has a story. I don't remember because I was so little, but we were in the grocery store and I wanted cantaloupe and she couldn't afford it. And mm-hmm. she just went home and cried because she couldn't oh. afford cantaloupe. And, you know, so after we were financially stable, we didn't have toys. We didn't have like a lot of stuff, but we could get whatever food we wanted. Like food insecurity was not a thing for my parents. They were like, you want two kinds of cereal, you can have two kinds of cereal, right? Because I think it traumatized them not be able to provide that for their kids. So when I was thinking about college and majors, it's like a very Western thing, right? What do you want to be when you grow up? And I was like, oh, I love this theater thing. I like this <laughs> thing. I'm musical theater. So I'm like, oh, I'm going to major in musical theater. And I think my dad must have laughed or something, but they were like, no, you're majoring in business. (laughs) That's what's going to happen. Only because I was not getting good grades in science to go into medicine. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, you see the children of a lot of immigrants go Mm -hmm. into professions because of financial stability. Mm -hmm. And it really forced me to think about like, yeah, there's a difference between the idea of passion and vocation and just survival. And unlike the story, unlike Asha and her mom's dreams, like my parents never really had anything for us, except we want you to be happy and we want you to be financially stable and we want you to be well-educated because for them, education was the biggest equalizer, right? And so they never um, pushed us well, they were, besides business, they weren't like, oh, you should be a perfumer because yeah. they don't have a heightened sense of smell. But if I did, they expected us to be successful. And that wasn't mm-hmm. like a discussion, if that makes sense. Like, yeah, we totally. were expected to go all the way up to get graduate degrees. Like, mm-hmm. we had to pay for it, but it was like an unwritten, unsaid thing. And you just mm-hmm. knew it. You grew up with it. And I think a lot of families... We all have those unwritten things that are just there and you know, and you internalize, but you can't identify the moment that you were told, right? Mm -hmm. I was thinking about this yesterday because I was trying to describe something in the book I'm writing and it's like your family protocol Mm -hmm. that's never presented, it's observed and it's absorbed and you just know, you grow up just knowing this is the fabric of who we are. Oh, it's my job to wash the dishes after dinner. Mm -hmm. You just know your role. You know what is expected of you. I wanted to put that in this book, but make it more pronounced because her mom had dreams. 
but she couldn't quite get there. You know, mm-hmm. she made choices and she's made choices because of those expectations. And she then turned around and had different expectations for her child. Those things get internalized by your children, in this case, by your child. And same with Neil. He has the same expectations. And for him, instead of rebelling, he like sets himself up to be perceived as incompetent or indolent (laughs) or incapable, right? But it was just disinterest on his part. And Neil's sister, Millie was like, put me in coach because I'm ready. I've absorbed (laughs) this. I know my place and I want to do it. And I got to explore the different ways we approach that and the different ways we make choices. And I didn't want to put blame. One isn't better than the other. So Mm -hmm. with Millie's character, I really wanted to show like, there's value in that sometimes. People who need structure, it gives them that structure. People who need the definition for what that means for them, like rise to the occasion. I'm very mindful to not write stories where like, it's my mom's fault because I have a very healthy respect for my parents and the way I grew up. Look, I had my share of temper tantrums and I did run away from home once, but it was literally upstairs to my uncle's house. So, (laughs) and my dad was like, keeper, (laughs) but it is this thing that I want to tell our stories that are universal stories. Like we are not othered in this. This isn't specific to Gujarati Americans. This isn't specific to immigrants. This is very much an inclusive family story that anyone can sort of identify with. What's next for you? I'm currently working on a book. It's not announced yet. It'll probably be announced by the time you air. I can tell you the vibes of the book. (laughs) It's two families because somehow that's my thing. Multi-generational trauma feuds between two families instead of them getting along set in Salem, Massachusetts. And it deals with Ayurveda and spice healing. And it's set in a spice shop in Salem. So the vibes are similar. The character is very different from either Mina or Asha. But yeah, I'm enjoying the story. (laughs) I hope that it doesn't come back as the plot doesn't work. And it's interesting that you had herbs in this book. Mm -hmm. Now you have to have herbs to have spices. And so it's interesting how you're taking probably what you learned a bit here and being able to use it and really expand on it in this one. One of the themes that I want to deal with this in this book is appreciation versus appropriation. So, you know, you take a spice like turmeric, is Starbucks charging $7 appreciation or is it appropriation? And who gets to define that, especially in a capitalistic society? So the little historical starting place for me is the Patel brothers and how it sort of became more widespread from this one shop to commercialism. And that gave access to everybody, make Indian food to, you know, and it just becomes embedded in the salad bowl of America. So I wanted to really explore that. Again, it's not one is wrong and one is right. You can make a case if you do it wrong of the appropriation. I am so annoyed at $7 for a turmeric latte when I can just make that at home. (laughs) Deny the healing power of turmeric. Like my father is really into Ayurvedic healing. It doesn't mean that you're not science bent. I still go to the doctor, get my physicals, all of that, do what they tell me. But it's 3000 years old. It's a medicine before medicine. And it's about balance in the body. And somehow it sort of either got co-opted in capitalism or it got misunderstood. And I just want to sort of explore that a little bit in this third book. So I'm excited to be able to do that. Yeah, It's still a story. (laughs) But it's always fun when you're reading fiction 
and you walk away learning something, you feel like you just got a lot smarter. I hope so. I know I got a lot smarter. (laughs) Are you reading anything interesting right now? I got a chance to blurb Amy Matthews's Someone Else's Bucket List that's coming out. Oh, fun. Fun sister story. I just read Sara Desai has a book coming out that's like a rom-com caper called The Heist. I finished The Good Enough Job. It's a nonfiction book. Good Enough Job was, we're all having existential crisis around our careers <laughs> at this point. Thank you, pandemic. So the author does a really good job of demystifying the myths of work. You know, we're finally moving away from this industrial revolution age mm-hmm. of work and working remote, not having nine to five hours or things like that. What work used to be as like identity building and mm-hmm. what it's now more and more becoming is more transactional as a way to live the life you want to choose, like you want to live, right? So you need it for health insurance in America and you need it for salary <laughs> and mortgage and all of that. So it was an interesting book and it's very readable. And I love nonfiction. I think I might have mentioned nonfiction fiction last time I was on. And I have a little bit of both. Yeah. I keep hearing that, oh, we're not ready to go into COVID yet in fiction. It's like we have COVID fatigue, but I love how you folded COVID in, in a subtle way, almost like you sewed it into the fabric of this story. And we're not talking about people getting sick. You folded it into something that probably half of us have dealt with the after effects. We love red wine and my husband still says he doesn't think he got his taste completely back yet. And so I think that that was so clever. You gave us that realistic piece without sinking us in it. You did that really well. Thank you so much. If I'm writing contemporary, I'm writing about the reality of our times. So you can't necessarily ignore a global pandemic. Then it's fantasy fiction for me. It's not (laughs) contemporary, but at the same time, This book wasn't about the trauma of the pandemic. Like, I didn't want to explore that. I think other writers can do that when they're ready. Mm -hmm. I also didn't want the reader to lose the story by focusing on their own. We all Mm -hmm. went through things and I write escapism. I didn't want the reader to be reminded of that. But for it to be really relatable, you know, I wanted them to know, like, yeah, there are people struggling with different after effects. And that's just our new reality. You can't necessarily write a book that's out in 2023, write another book in 2024 without having your characters not be touched by it. You don't have to personally have had it or been affected, but you know that millions of people (laughs) did. So you're, you're just living that world. But I appreciate you saying that because I didn't want to make the reader feel like this, but I wanted to acknowledge that this thing happened. He did it in a very nuanced way. Okay. As I mentioned earlier, we're going to do this lightning round. Are you ready? I'm ready. You've had a long day or night of writing. How do you reward yourself? I watch reruns of Psych, the TV show. I watch reruns. Favorite romantic movie? Speed. Oh yeah. (laughs) The food that takes you home. Kitchity, which is this rice and lentil dish we just grew up eating. It's comfort food. If my mom makes it, it's all the better for it. <laughs> the song that makes you feel 18 again. Ooh. Um, oh my God, that's a hard one. I want to say like anything by In Excess or Duran oh. Duran. I'll give you an actual song. Say a prayer. Duran Duran, yeah. say a prayer. Oh, now I'm going to be hearing that in my Fearless head. Whisper, wham. Oh. That's the one. I've been on an In Excess Kick. It's been on my playlist oh, lately. I miss Michael <laughs> Hutchins so much. This question's just for you. Favorite perfume? Oh, right now it's Hermes Twilly. I found it during my research. <laughs> 
I didn't have the guts to buy a bottle because it was a little bit spendy, yeah. but maybe I will. I had a little sample and it's just lovely. Maybe you'll get to celebrate when this book hits. Yes. That's a great reward. Yes. <laughs> what was your last streaming binge? Scrubs. Elmo or Big Bird? Ooh, Big Bird. It's not a celebration without... It's not a celebration without wine. Oh, yeah. What kind of wine? I'm into the Lambruscos right now. The sparkling Lambrusco. Yes. I just discovered it like two years ago. And I'm like, yeah, it's a summer wine for me now. (laughs) I like bubbles. My husband will get Chardonnay out on a hot day or or Sauvignon Blanc. I'm like, no, I'm in the mood for bubbles. There's just something about bubbles. Yes. Okay. Finish the sentence. Taylor Swift is? Magical. What do you keep out of view during Zoom calls? Uh, A chaos. (laughs) Great answer. Now that you've got two books and almost three, what advice do you have for these new writers? Pay attention to craft. Because I will say that most writers are very creative. And myself included, as, as the thought question came up, but you have to pay attention to craft because sometimes you think, oh my God, I don't want to be tied to this formula. I don't want to be tied to the structure, but it's not for you. It's for the reader. It makes it easier for the reader to understand what you're trying to say or what you're trying to do. Creativity can happen. So if you're going to spend time anywhere, spend it on structure. Thank you for joining us again. I can't wait to do it again next year. No, I didn't I'm pre-booking it. This is going to be our annual thing, Chris. To learn more, visit nompatel.com. That's nom, N-A-M, patel.com. If you're enjoying The Writing Table, please consider leaving us a review. There are so many podcasts out there. Reviews help other listeners find us. Thanks so much for your support.